Hi there, I'm Adam Spencer, and this is Telstra Behind the Mic, a series on ideas, discussions and exchanges focused on insights, inspirations and innovations. Now, as a mathematician, this is a dream episode for me today. Might sound like a bit of a bad joke, a demographer and a mathematician walk into a podcast studio. So today it's time to meet self-professed numbers man, Bernard Salt. The greatest skill that you need, I think, in the workforce of the future is the ability to adapt to a new circumstance. Your business might have been bought out. Can you reinvent yourself? That flexibility, that fluidity is clearly the greatest skill set going forward. The Australian says that Bernard Salt cuts, slices and dices contemporary Australia with precision. He takes the numbers, the stats, the data and moulds these into a digestible social commentary on the world for business, the media, for all of us. So what do these numbers, what do these stats say? Well, a lot in fact. And the hard facts of the past are always a solid roadmap to the future. From a business point of view, demographer is a an umbrella term that uh, deals with anyone that effectively scopes the market. And that might be market spending, the market size. Um, it might involve uh, questionnaires and so forth. So uh, demographer is really a catch-all phrase from a business point of view. You could probably proudly claim to be Australia's most famous demographer. I don't know how often you brag about that, but when did you when did you come to it? I've always known you as doing this stuff. Were you doing <laughs> other things at KPMG and drifted towards this, or have you always been a demographer at heart? Well, in actual fact, it started 30 years ago when I was working as a research officer for a, a planning commission in Geelong, and I came across a data set which looked at the number of people by local government area across Australia and was produced in five or six different bulletins across, the, across Australia. I had the idea of putting it all together into one big spreadsheet and working out the fastest growing places on the Australian continent. It seemed quite logical to me. And I actually did that, put it out there, and the response across Australia was absolutely extraordinary. No one had thought to put all of this information together to get this high-altitude view of rates of population growth and decline ranked from fastest growing to fastest losing, and it immediately gave me a national profile and a, um, a media profile uh, as well. And I released that report every year for 10 years. And that really started my, my uh, authority, if you like, in the area of demography. So my party trick is to actually identify every single municipality on the Australian continent, know exactly where it is and roughly what its population is. Oh, the excitement with which you talk about <laughs> your first ever data set is just heartwarming. I mean, the time you've been doing this, in theory now we live in this age of big data and access to data, are businesses in general using readily available stats and numbers as much as they should in formulating their, their, their policies, their decisions, their directions? Well, this goes to, the, the, to an issue, a very popular issue at the moment. People talk about big data and uh, infographics. And there's a whole lot of really cool stuff that, that modern technology is delivering. And in some respects, a business, a CEO, a senior management team and a board can get flooded with just a sheer volume of information. There's no end to the amount of data that you can get and that you can capture and you can prettily show uh, in a presentation or something like that. All of that is wonderful. However, someone somewhere 
someone on the board, someone in the senior management team, the CEO needs to convert that information into an action. They need to distill it down and say, this is what the numbers are saying. It's not the numbers. They certainly do um, show the context and so forth. It is the story, the lessons, the significance, the, the context that shows the way forward. That is the story. That is what you're trying to drive at. Numbers per se mean nothing. They're boring. It's the story that is absolutely compelling and gives certainty to decision-making. And it's that skill, converting information into action, that is the real skill in demography in a business sense. You work with a lot of businesses of a lot of different sizes. When you look at businesses and look at the data they are analysing and the stories they are interpreting, what's, what's a big area that businesses tend to miss? Are there, are there general things you would advise businesses to look at more often than they currently do or if they don't at all? It always strikes me as um, unusual or odd that businesses seem to be so focused on the here and now, the price of you know whatever the dollar value is, uh, whether whether um, figures are up or down this month compared to last month, or this quarter compared to last quarter, or what the share price is. All of those seem to be very short term, whereas the figures that I think that they should be interested in are really big picture, long term trends. Are you in the right business at the right time, offering the right product? And really, that's. They're the big questions that a board, that a CEO, that a management team need to get right. If you can get that right, then the day-to-day operation becomes easier. You're not pushing uphill because you're fundamentally in the wrong business, in the wrong location, selling the the wrong product. We are really rich per capita. We have the means to indulge our preference for our obsession with lifestyle as well as with technology. We have the means to do that. And you think, oh, that's all very interesting, but what about tomorrow? The lockdown of the nation through COVID-19 has turned our home and business lives upside down. The next steps in modelling are treading a fresh path. We've all experienced many developments in our home, suburbs and our work and in ourselves. You've said numbers by themselves can be quite boring, but the stories behind the numbers are interesting, that, that, that people tell their stories through numbers. But what's something, what's a stat that's in, in the last few years that has just floored you when you first noticed it? Well, the, the, the stat that is uh, really um, impacting me at the moment is the extent to which the economy will contract as a consequence of the coronavirus. And if you measure that against previous recessions in 1990, 92, then 83, 84, then 74, and there was a small one in the 60s and so forth, you can actually see that the scale of what is being planned or what is being anticipated today at something like a 7, 8, 9, 10% contraction in, the, in 2020 is by far the largest downturn that we have seen probably since the Great Depression. And it's when you place things in context, numbers by themselves mean absolutely nothing. You must put some sort of benchmark, some sort of context against that so that people can see and appreciate the significance. What we are dealing with here in this year is something, it's more than once a generation, it's once in three generations. And hopefully, hopefully, we won't have to be dealing with this 
for another three generations into the future. What else do you think's changing? I read that you said Australian values have shifted. We've recalibrated the contribution reward equation. We're less impressed with celebrity, more impressed with selflessness. In the post-corona world that awaits us beyond the lockdown, there will be more we and less me. Tell, Tell me more about that. Yes, this is my idea around we might be seeing the the end of narcissism. Maybe that's a little optimistic, but maybe even a pause in narcissism would would work well. Uh, If you think back to the early days of the lockdown, it was very popular for uh, Hollywood celebrities to post online their identification with, with ordinary people about the trials and tribulation of the lockdown, and they were presenting this view from amid their grand mansions and the response was immediately immediate that a celebrity really can't connect with the values of the people today. And we searched around and we saw other people, other heroes, not celebrities, but volunteers, the frontline workers. We even identified people like supermarket shelf fillers. And then it occurred to us, these are the people that are important, people that up until this moment, we hadn't really considered their net contribution to society. Someone filling a shelf in a, in a supermarket, actually that person is important. And that's my point, that I think that the coronavirus has forced us to press the reset button and to reevaluate, recast our values and to see where real value, real contribution lies. And it's not such a bad thing. You've suggested the phrase, we might be past peak Kardashian. Are we moving beyond the smashed avocado <laughs> society that you spoke of? Fill people in quickly on smashed avocado. And are you saying that, that that's being challenged now? Well, in fact, um, the smashed avocado thing was uh, in reference to a column that I wrote. It was actually a parody on, uh, on middle-aged people moralising about young people eating smashed avocado and not saving for a house. Uh, it was taken out of context and it went global, uh, in fact, but in some respects, this whole idea of the cafe society, the just-in-time society, um, you would have to say is actually being questioned as a consequence of the coronavirus. I think we're now re-evaluating our values. I think we will be far more cautious, more sa- more inclined to save going forward. If you look at the number of recessions that occurred in Australia, from the end of the First Second World War, There was a recession in the 1960s, early 1960s, then the 1970s, then in the 1980s, then in the 1990s. Our parents' generation knew that good times were followed by bad. But if you've only ever known 30 years of prosperity, as we have, then why would you save for the future? That also applies, I think, in terms of the way in which Australia has outsourced its entire manufacturing capability We perhaps don't need to manufacture motor vehicles on the Australian continent, but we really do need to be able to manufacture a $2 face mask. And that is what has been exposed by the coronavirus, the fragility, the just-in-timedness of the Australian economy. We need to rethink that. Time to press the reset button and to imagine what Australia might look like, could look like, should look like in the months and years ahead. Something I've witnessed uh, firsthand, I live about 90 minutes out of uh, the Sydney CBD in a, a smaller sort of suburb, and we have a local pizza shop and a local bar that sells bar food as well. And 
watching the community realise we really have to help these guys and buy a couple of meals a week to keep them above water, do you think that's been a more general trend? Are people becoming more connected to small businesses and and locality as a result of not being able to go anywhere and and seeing businesses that could be in a very fraught situation? I think you've um, hit the nail exactly on the head there. This is part of the recalibration of Australian values that we now suddenly appreciate the tough times that small business uh, is going through, whether it's a local cafe or bar or, or whatever it is, and we're interested in supporting them. We would be interested in supporting an Australian manufacturer, in fact. We are now interested in and reconnected with our neighbourhood. You now are more likely to better know your neighbours. Uh, in fact, there's some wonderfully heartwarming stories of people that have looked out for and supported elderly people in their neighbourhood that they, perhaps they may not have connected with earlier. Adversity sometimes creates a circumstance that cultivates and brings out the best in people. We have rebuilt trust in community. Going into the coronavirus, we had lost faith in big business, in big government. I think we have rebuilt faith in leadership and in community and in each other coming out of it. The critical thing will be to hang on to the positive learnings and shifts that have taken place and to use that as part of the structure of creating that better Australia in the years ahead. It's interesting what you say about institutions there because you you have seen some organisations do amazing things under real time pressure. Telstra, for example, who who sponsored this series, um, had had a team that took only a couple of days to develop an app to track the availability of ICUs and and, and beds in hospital because they were under time pressure because it simply had to happen. Tell us more about what you think the role or or perception of institutions could look like post-COVID, Bernard? Well, I think there have been, um, Telstra has done, uh, they did a terrific job with that, uh, the formation of that app. But there are other businesses as well that morphed into, and this actually applied overseas. I remember reading about the, you know, the, the grand fashion houses of Paris were morphing into the manufacture of face masks. This wasn't that wonderful. And then the breweries and distilleries in Australia morphing into the manufacture of uh, hand sanitizer. When, when your back is against the wall, when you're really up against it, to have an institution like a Telstra or a fashion house for that matter, to come in and say, here is what we can do. Here is our skill set. Here is our human capital. Here is how we can make a contribution. And it really matters when your back is against the wall. Being helpful and nice to people, is, is, you know, it's, it's great, it's good. When, when people feel threatened frightened, concerned to be there, to say, we've got your back. We are leveraging our considerable skill set and we're going to apply it to this problem and we're going to make a contribution. People don't forget that. You're building trust. And then taking that forward, you'd say, well, you know, trust is an important part of a successful, galvanised, caring, prosperous community. The diminution of trust has been one of the most corrosive elements of Australian and also other societies. It's time now to actually rebuild it and construct a stronger, more trusting society going forward. 
For years, we'd heard in the growing tech-savvy world, we'd all be working from home. But despite an army of knowledge workers emerging over the past two decades, barely one worker in 20 worked from home. But then along came the coronavirus, and those who could work from home had to do so. This, this issue of work from home is one of the most fascinating aspects of the coronavirus lockdown. Prior to the lockdown, barely 5% of the Australian workforce worked from home. This was a proportion that had not changed in 20 years. It also includes about two percentage points which are farmers in, who have to work from home. So despite the fact that we had all of this whiz-bang technology going from modems to 4G or 5G or whatever it is, the Australian workforce would not shift of that four or five percentage points. During the lockdown, the proportion of the workforce working from home, I think, probably got to 35, maybe 40 percent. I do not think it'll snap back to 5%. I think it'll pull back to maybe 10%. But this is significant. It shows that the lockdown has convinced workplaces, employers, that workers can be trusted to work from home. They can be productive. And in many respects, they are more productive in working from home. And if you can double the proportion, the long-term proportion of work from home, then you're reducing the number of people on the roads, public transport, reducing stress, reducing carbon emissions, uh, making contribution to relationships, if you like. It's a better mousetrap. I don't think that the millennial generation will buy the model of living on the edge of town and commuting for an hour to get to work and then an hour to go home. It just, why would you do that in the 21st century? The coronavirus breakpoint has shown Australia better way forward. And that depends on uh, being able to effectively telecommute. We've had to upscale the home office. So the home office is now a broadcast outlet, H-O-B-O, the hobo space. Uh, And we've also lifted our skills. Everyone now knows how to Skype and other things as well. So again, there's a lot of learnings, a lot of new technology. We're actually creating a better model for society based on trust. This is the whole point. An adversity like this really does force you to rethink your business model. The the other point that I would make about a a lockdown for eight weeks or 10 weeks or whatever, it forces people to work on their business rather than in their business. So if you're locked down for that amount of time, then you might be able to work on your website, work on the product offerings or your marketing, or to develop a new platform to create a new business that actually goes to be part of the way which you operate beyond the lockdown. It's a period of reflection, a a time to create or imagine a better version of your business going forward. I'd love to get your thoughts on, on supply chains and on trade, both national and international trade going forward. It might be too early to have hard stats yet, but where do you see the post-COVID world going on supply chains and trade for business? Well, supply chains, this is the uh, this is my uh, great, I suppose, strategic insight or, or view coming out of the coronavirus, this idea that we most certainly do need to be thinking of, an, of Australia as an island, uh, which can at times be cut off. Now, at the moment, it's cut off because of a pandemic, but it could also be cut off because of some sort of climate event, some sort of climate catastrophe, or some sort of military tension, just has to be a tension that actually blockades Australia. We need to have better capabilities on the Australian continent. We need to have greater fuel reserves. 
we need to have the capabilities, the capacities to ensure that we, uh, that we have all that we need. So that would be pharmaceutical, medical, uh, fuel reserves, um, all of the good bits and pieces that make society uh, operate. We need a review of the critical bits of infrastructure and the supply chains that actually deliver that to the Australian people uh, going forward. And uh, as for trade, well, this will really depend. I think Australia is going to come out of the coronavirus pretty well before other nations, maybe with the exception of uh, New Zealand. Uh, so we will be on our own, I would have thought, through the balance of this year and into uh, next year. And uh, as a consequence, I, you know, I don't think um, international aviation will be opening up anytime soon, but I think our focus should be on strengthening and deepening and broadening our capacities to, to, to manage the Australian economy within the Australian continent. So, so in closing, Bernard, I, I also think it's, it's been such an age of sudden chaos truly internationally. Are you sort of in a, in a slightly unfamiliar position here that, that with many of these things, we, we don't have the data yet because the focus has been so strongly on trying to damp down this disease. There must be a really exciting period of time coming as we start to get some hard numbers on where Australia and the world is at and, and, and work out how to act on them. The issue is that the coronavirus, the coming of the coronavirus, has been a little bit like a meteorite hitting planet Earth, and it landed in Australia in in March, and it's obliterated everything. We will not get readings. We will not get feedback. We won't get the key metrics until maybe June, July, August, September. In the latter part of this year, we'll be able to look back and say, yes, here is how big that meteorite was. Here is how it impacted. Here is the gash that are tore across the economy, and here are the 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 outcomings that uh, that flowed from that, and here are the where here is where the economy and businesses are responding. But we won't see that. There's too much smoke. There's too much haze. We're still in the reverberation stage of the meteorite impact. We'll see that later in the year. The important thing, I think, is to actually look beyond the next year, beyond this year, into next year and beyond, and to have faith that Australia, after the First World War, after the Second World War, Australia was seen as a place of refuge, a place of opportunity. It was safe, it was secure, it was remote. All of those things that, that keep us quite separate from the rest of the world is actually an advantage and actually will create people who want to come to Australia because of its remoteness, because of its security, because of its isolation. We did it in the 1920s, we did it in the 1950s, I think we'll do it again in the 2020s, creating this better version of an even bigger Australia. Well, Bernard Solder, it is always fascinating speaking with you, getting your insights. How about we make a deal that you come back in a few months when you've got your hands on some of those big, juicy data sets and us numbers nerds can trawl through it all together? I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Adam. A big thanks to Bernard Salt especially for the humanity that he brings to statistics. And in these times, a little humanity does go a long way. Maybe we'll come out of this as a better, more beautiful Australia. We'll just have to wait and see. While we're doing that, why don't you also check out other podcasts in this series with great guests like Anusa Ansari on space travel and our drawing from her childhood, Fulfilled a Dream. Charles Dewig on how your habits, good and bad, can work for you. And Daniel Pink as he unearthed the secret motivation behind perfect timing. I'm Adam Spencer and this has been Telstra Behind the Mic.